This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, we check in with News Director Dave Thompson for our weekly news debrief. And Madeline reviews the new film, Tick, Tick, Boom. But we are going to start today with our segment, Philosophical Currents. Once a month, we visit with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein to get a philosopher's take on current news events and a big one this week, talking about what's happening in Ukraine versus Russia. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. I'm not so happy about talking uh, about this topic in particular. <laughs> well, right away, I and I would say inadvertently, but I said verses in there. And I think that we can use this uh, sort of Freudian slip to talk about how we frame the discussion of war is that it's always a one side versus the other. And so I will start right away with do we need to talk about war always in the context of one side is good and one side is inherently bad? I think that's a really good point, and I don't think you want to start off on you know the one side is always right position because international politics is super complicated. But also, I think it's important to recognize that it's not just one coherent side versus another coherent side. There are lots of subgroups within any nation, within any political dispute. You have the leaders, you have the military leaders, you have the conscripted, you have the civilians, you have all the people who are affected. This is a conflict between the U- between Ukraine and Russia, but it's a conflict that involves really the whole world, and that's one of the reasons why it's so scary. I want to talk about two different things that you said, or more accurately, almost said, in that one is that you almost said the Ukraine, uh, and, and two is that you called it a conflict and not a war. Let's start with that one. Why is it important to define things, difference between an invasion, a conflict, a skirmish, an uprising, a war? All of those words have baggage. And all of those words are framed by one side or another. Black Lives Matter calls their protests uprising. Other people call them riots or call them protests. And all three of those options mean very different things to very different people. A conflict implies an ambiguity. Is it a war? I don't know how to answer that question. Is it a war the moment a bomb drops? Is it a war the moment one person shoots? Is it a war the moment one country invades another country? Is it something that can be stopped? These words are really, really loaded. Another example of this is the word genocide. Once something is labeled a genocide by the United States, we have a moral obligation to go in and protect those people. So... Our government is very, very reluctant to call anything a genocide, even though it looks like a genocide to everyone else, and even some people will call it that. Same thing here. I don't know what the ramifications are of calling it a war versus a conflict. There is great debate as to whether it's an invasion because Russia claims that Ukraine is their territory. And so the philosophical battle is fought in part in that very word, invasion versus war versus something else. 
Well, the other phrasing that you almost use, you stopped yourself from saying the Ukraine. And I, in prepping for this, is the first time that I sort of realized there is a difference between saying the Ukraine and Ukraine. And when I was a kid, the Ukraine was in the news a lot because it was the 90s. It was the fall of the the Soviet Union, the dissolution of all of these uh, areas in that part of the world and becoming their own countries. And so uh, what is the difference, Jack, between calling this place the Ukraine versus what is now uh, accepted as Ukraine? Well, I will say first off that uh, Ukrainians that I know get very upset when you call it the Ukraine because the Ukraine implies that it's a territory of Russia. It implies that it's a not a sovereign state, whereas Ukraine is what they call it. Now, obviously, in the structure of a sentence, you might have to say the Ukraine like you say the United States. But our country isn't the United States. Our country is United States. A country is Chile. Our country is Ecuador. The moment you put the the in it, it implies, at least in this context, a lack of sovereignty. And so you're absolutely right. The Ukraine is a throwback to the Soviet years, and it implies that Ukraine is not its own country. And this is actually, I mean, another way of putting this, to go back to the earlier question, is the philosophical battle, the international battle, is about the word the. Because if it's the Ukraine, Mm. then Russia may have a right to do what it's doing. But if it's Ukraine, Russia does not. Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin says Ukraine has no national identity. It gained independence in 1991. It does have its own borders recognized on maps. It has its own language. Do you, does it seem like when a world leader says they have no national identity, is this a dehumanizing tactic to justify uh, war? Or is he somehow justified, do you think, in saying that? Neither, actually. I don't necessarily think that it's dehumanizing, but it certainly is a rhetorical tactic. I heard yesterday a speech from the U.N. representative of Kenya, and he was talking in support of the Russian sanctions. And he was saying that he was pointing out that 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 all of the African continent was framed after World War Two and after World War One. It was all borders that were established by non-Africans. And it mm-hmm. cuts across religious lines and cultural lines and national identity. But those lines have been instrumental in forming not only national identities, but in creating a sense of peace and a sense of long term forward lookingness is basically what he said. He used the the phrase forward looking. He said, if you look backwards at the old identities, then all you have is conflict. But if you look forward, you can balance your national sovereignty with the integration of the African continent. It's it's a similar thing here. There is absolutely a longstanding tradition in Ukraine of language, of culture, of community. There's a they're indigenous people who have been there for forever because it's it's Central Europe. Um, but the national identity that was established when the borders were established isn't false because it was established recently. They are meaningful. The question is, do the borders indicate sovereignty? Do the borders indicate something that another country 
commits a crime when they cross. That's what the battle is over. Ukrainians think it is a crime to do so. Russia does not. But there are areas of Ukraine that have ethnic Russians. There is the the Crimea. Notice the Crimea, not Crimea. There is the Crimea that Russia annexed a few years ago. And so the question really is, what do borders mean? And regardless of the history of the borders, what have they come to establish in the modern world? And how has current Europe and the current global community responded to those borders? And as far as I can tell, uh, everyone recognized its sovereignty until this week. Hmm. Well, talking about borders, Ukraine borders several countries besides Russia. And I'm just wondering how much of this conversation is important in the global context here because it is Russia. It is a superpower country. It's, well, like, what if it was Moldova? It also borders Ukraine. What if Moldova invaded Ukraine? Do you think it would be getting as much attention? So again, there's two aspects here. The first is, you're right, the legacy of empire, the legacy of aggression, the legacy of the Soviet Union. There's a big difference watching Russia march into a country than, say, watching, I don't know, um, I'll choose Ecuador again, Watching in, uh, marching into a country. There's a big difference watching Germany march into a country than there is watching France, right? Just because history has weight and we have to remember that. At the same time, I don't think you can have any of these conversations without thinking about it on the geopolitical level. You have to ask yourself, what resources do these countries have and what do they provide the invader or the um, interested party, shall we say? Ukraine has access to gas. It has access to, to, to oil, but it also has access to water. Right. Russia on the north uh, has as access to water. But in the south or in the west, it has to get to the Baltic. It has to get to um, the Black Sea. It has to get to other places. And so by grabbing Ukraine, they give themselves access to trade, to waterways, to pipelines and creates a buffer between what we generally call Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Putin obviously sees Ukraine as a staging ground to protect Russia from NATO and from the expansion of the West. And since Ukraine has flirted with the idea of becoming a NATO partner and becoming part of the European Union, that's a real threat. So I don't want to say, you know, Putin is not necessarily, you know, God knows I can't enter into his mind, right? But Putin isn't not is not necessarily an irrational lunatic who seeks to take over the world. What he is is someone who has a vision of how the world is constructed and sees the threat coming from the West and sees the oncoming need for more fossil fuels and more connectivity and recognizes, as everyone does, that Ukraine plays a, a pivotal role in that. And so 
again, going back to your very first question, good versus bad, it's just as dangerous to sort of dismiss a leader as crazy, raving lunatic, power hungry, as it is to just dismiss them as bad, not because we want to be empathetic, but because we want to understand what they want. We want to understand what the real goals are, because you can't have a strategy, you can't find an alternative, you can't see what your options are if you can't enter into the minds of the of the people in the conflict. A lot to pick apart in that answer, and I want to focus in on a couple of words there when you talk about strategy in terms of you know world powers, aligning yourself uh, with Europe versus aligning yourself with Russia, uh, and then the different resources that Ukraine has access to. You mentioned gas, you mentioned water, and why those might be strategic advantages for Russia to control. And I think that this leads into this idea of a just war. What is the just war theory? And can something that potentially comes down to resource management be ever classified as a just war? Human beings have been fighting since before we were human beings, right? All animals fight. The difference between human beings and as far as we can tell everyone else, is that we have moral codes. We have a sense of right and wrong, of proper and improper. And we have applied that code to everything from personal relationships to property, uh, ownership, to education, to conflict. War is probably as old as, as the human race itself, depending again on how you define war. And people have been trying very hard to figure out the rules to fight wars that are both winnable and moral. Who can you kill? Who can you not kill? Um, what weapons can you use? How do you treat prisoners? All of these are questions of morality within war. At the heart of that is the question, when is it okay to fight a war? And the general default position is... It's okay to fight a war when you're defending yourself or you're defending someone else. It is always the case or it is almost always the case when you are the aggressor that you are doing the wrong thing. Just like it's almost always the case that if you walk down the street and you punch someone in the head, you're doing the wrong thing. A just war is the phrase that philosophers, politicians, uh, the military has used for generations to indicate that this war fits the criteria of a war that we should fight. And the two paradigmatic examples of a, a just war and an unjust war, World War II was a just war for the allies defending the world against um, Germany and and. Um, the Axis powers. And Vietnam was an unjust war pretty much for everybody, right? America shouldn't have gotten involved. China shouldn't have invaded. And that was an unnecessary war. And so if you, if Russia is, has declared war on Ukraine, if Russia has invaded Ukraine, if that's what we've decided that they've done, then we can probably say that it's an unjust war because there's no legitimate reason to and because they are the aggressors. Ukrainians are perfectly justified in defending themselves and many, many, many people in the world are perfectly justified in coming to their aid, although certainly 
we want whenever possible to try to avoid war because war is horrendously destructive to everybody, right? There, there, There's no one who comes unscathed out of war, even the people who win it. Can a term like just war be applied retroactively or does it have to be just from the beginning? No, I, I, I think you can apply it retroactively. I think that often people are mistaken about certain things, right? I mean, I don't necessarily think that the people who wanted uh, America to go into Vietnam were, you know, inherently evil, that they, you know, were twisting their little mustache and ha, 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 right? I mean, I don't, you know, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And in retrospect, we learned that, that that was not the case. This is why the battle over whether or not there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the Bush administration is so important, because if the Bush administration honestly, truly believed that there were not only weapons of mass destruction, but the ability to deploy those weapons, then the case can be made that going into Iraq and invading was a just act. But if the Bush administration knowingly lied, if they were if they were intentionally misinforming the people, if they were using it for political reasons or for imperial reasons, if they were um, if it turned out that Iraq was no threat at all or no significant threat at all, which is what many people think now, then it was an unjust war. So. You can know some people can know at the time if they're lying or if the if the facts are are manipulated. But very often we don't know any of these details until after it's over, because sometimes you just make a mistake. And sometimes even with the best of intentions, you do the wrong thing. You have used the word moral several times in this conversation. And so I want to take away the most obvious answer here being that there are humans involved. Going beyond that, why do the rest of us care about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine? You know, that's such a rich and important question. And there's the realist practical answer, and then there's the sort of holistic, noble, virtuous answer. The realist practical answer is it's going to affect our lives. It's going to affect our gas prices. It's going to affect... Uh, international commerce. It's going to uh, interfere with all sorts of things uh, in our own personal and national interest. That's not romantic, but it's certainly true. The The other response is, is the great question of humankind. I always say to my students, when you tell the story of the West, when you tell the Abrahamic story, um, the first question that human beings ask God is, am I my brother's keeper? And that is a question that we have been asking ever since. Are we our siblings keeper? Do we have a moral responsibility to care for other people? Did we have a moral responsibility to defend the Syrians against their own government because the Syrian government was decimating the population, massacring the population? By virtue of them being human beings, we may have that responsibility. 
That is the great question of every religious tradition. It is the great question of every political conflict. It's the great question of taxation. It's the great question of public education. It's the, you know, if, if your neighbor is abusing their spouse and you know it, do you have a moral responsibility to stop it? Do you have a moral responsibility to call the police? Do you have a moral responsibility to intervene in some way? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to whether or not how this affects us is going to vary based on whether we're asking very practical questions or whether we're asking the moral question of respecting people's integrity as human beings. Well, talking more about the concept of morality, who really gets to decide what is moral and what is immoral? And I'm thinking of for example, the Geneva Convention, these things that we operate by within war, prisoners of war have to be treated you know, with a certain level of respect, regardless of which side they're fighting for. But if a country, for example, can beat someone for having a photo uh, or any kind of likeness of Muhammad drawn... And then other countries in the world might take umbrage with that. Who gets to decide which is the moral superiority there? That is the core of the problem, because even if there is a right and a wrong, as human beings, we are fallible creatures. And even if there's a God and God has told us from on high what morality is or what the right thing to do is, there's still the question of interpretation. There's still the question of reasoning. And so we as human beings are suffer through bias, culture, habit, ego, the necessity of, of scarcity and, and things like that. And so you're going to get tremendous disagreement. One of the interesting things about war is that as much as there has been any other debate about moral actions, there's been a millennia debate about how you treat people in war. There's been debates about, you know, the Greeks um, had, a, had a convention that in war they would treat Greeks, other Greeks in a certain way, and they would treat non-Greeks in a different way. And that has passed on to us because the non-Greek, the Greek word for non-Greek is barbarian. And the idea of a barbarian is you don't have a moral responsibility to, to care about them. You only have a moral responsibility to care about us. And we've been trying to negotiate that forever. Right. And every again, every religion has insider rules and outsider rules. War has recognized that the people who are fighting the wars are not necessarily the people who are making decisions. And often the people who are fighting the wars are the most limited in their experience, have the most limited information. And so you treat the infantry members very differently than you treat the generals, right? You treat the people who are on the field of battle very differently than you treat the people who are at the tables, you know, deciding the strategy. And that's where things like the Geneva Convention comes in. That's where things like um, prohibitions on, on, on chemical and gas and biological warfare come in. Because we recognize, at least at this point, wars have to be fought. So the question is, are there ways to fight wars that are still winnable, 
but minimize the cruelty. One of the difficulties, again, in Vietnam, but this has been true in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, is in any guerrilla situation, that's guerrilla with a U, any guerrilla situation, you can't tell the difference between a non-combatant and a combatant. The general rule of war is you, you are free to kill combatants, but you have to protect or avoid killing non-combatants. In Vietnam, it was very hard to distinguish between the two because some of the combatants were 10 years old and a lot of the combatants were hiding in villages. And so you end up making horrendous decisions like the My Lai Massacre, where you burn down entire villages uh, or an entire village and kill all these people just to get to the combatants. So this idea of distinguishing between who you can kill and how you can kill them is the result of centuries, if not longer, of debate between winners and losers. And ultimately, the treaty decides who's right and who's not. The treaty tells us, you know, the signatories promise. But one of the realities of, again, human life is that people break their promises and people do horrible things. And so who gets to decide is a very complicated question. If there's a God, God gets to decide. But God may not have been as clear <laughs> as um, as maybe God should have been. And so we are stuck with our human fallibilities and the need to be good people and global citizens and contrast that with the need to cater to our own self-interest. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. He joins us once a month for a philosopher's take on a news event. Jack, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. I hope this uh, skirmish ends very quickly and this conversation becomes obsolete as soon as possible. <laughs> Still to come on Main Street, a conversation with news director Dave Thompson. But now it's time for today's news.